Welcome to the Back of House podcast. Unfortunately, Mike is off doing Mike things. Well, maybe not so unfortunate, but uh, as a result, he's unable to join me for this introduction. Um, Now, today's guest is a gentleman by the name of Aaron Heary, and Aaron is the Chief Strategy Officer and Chief Operating Officer for Good Drinks Australia. Um, and one of the primary reasons we wanted to get Aaron on uh, was to share his pathway to leadership within uh, not only that business but within the industry uh, as a whole. So Aaron's Aaron's uh, story is fairly unique in that he did not come up uh, through traditional operational management roles within the sector, yet he finds himself now running a hospitality business. So um, his perspective on how to create uh, a strong guest experience um, is, is really unique. So without any further ado, we will welcome Aaron to the Back of House podcast. Well, welcome to the Back of House podcast, Aaron. Thanks for joining us. Thanks, gentlemen. It's great to be here. Hello, Michael. How are you, Luke? Good, thanks. <laughs> <laughs> as exciting as always, isn't it? <laughs> We've obviously introduced <laughs> you um, before we uh, get started, but um, we might just get you to, rather than focusing on your history first, because I think that might be a good, your personal sort of career path, that might be a good sort of second part to the story. But can you, for those that are listening, that are listening, my brain's not working today, um, who maybe don't know much about Gage or Good Drinks, can you give us the the uh, the overview? Tell us all about the business. Yeah, Good Drinks Australia is um, a national uh, independent drinks company now. We represent a whole range of brands to the market but originally we started our whole journey as uh, Gage Roads Brewing Company based out of Fremantle in um, in Western Australia that started look Gage Roads has been around for about 17 18 years or so now and we along the way kind of grew that brand and and we got to a point in our journey where we felt there was real value to be added to the market and and the market was missing a, a really true independent drinks company that really focused on craft beer and being able to knock on the door and, and service customers in a way that, you know, we weren't just talking about one brand. We were able to then say, well, you know, we've got the Gage Roads, Gage Roads, Single Fin, Pipe Dream, Sidetrack, that's great. Um, what if a customer already had that or was there more value we could add? What about ginger beer? What about Matzo's ginger beer? And the conversation really started around the time we we kind of bought, I guess, um, Matzo's. We were, we were already making it for the family and they, they rang us up and said, we've had enough. Well, are you interested in buying it? And we thought, great, let's, um, let's use this as the launch pad to, to start a drinks company. And um, since then, you know, we've, we've basically um, we've added on uh, the Atomic Beer Project in, um, in Sydney uh, and the Atomic Beer brands that come with that. We have a local brand in Western Australia called Albi. More recently, we've started to introduce... Um, some overseas brands. So we now represent San Miguel. We represent uh, MC, uh, MCI, which is the, the latest the latest we've done with Miller's and um, Miller's Chill, um, Coors and uh, Magnus Cider uh, to not do it with, with a whole range of others. So now we've become effectively, we've, we've formed a drinks company. It's now the largest um, independent drinks company in, in, in the country and one of the fastest growing um, companies. We've got a national footprint now. We have head sales offices in uh, Queensland, New South Wales, Victoria and South Australia and South and we've just just put um, people into uh, Northern Territory as well and obviously we're very strong in, in Western Australia where Good Drinks and Gage Roads is now, we're the largest beer manufacturer in, in WA 
and produce we're about 30% of the craft beer market here now in WA. That might come as a bit of a surprise to some some on the East Coast that, that may be just starting to get to know us, but um, our aim is to um, is to continue that growth uh, through to um, some of the key key markets on the east coast, I guess, and that's that's sort of a bit of an overview of where we're at and what we're trying to what we're trying to achieve. But um, really focused on good quality, um, good quality uh, beverages, predominantly in in beer and um, in RTD and that, that sort of space that has a similar kind of call cycle. How hard is that bridging that gap between Western Australia and the and the east coast from a product perspective? Because you don't you don't tend to see too many products originating on the west coast and, and getting big over here i know there's a couple of like other side and those guys try, try, tried to do it in the past yeah. but and and it's probably the same in the other going the other direction as well is that a, is that a, a really big challenge i think probably the the first thing to recognize like the nullabor is is like a giant it's like a giant wall it's like a giant barrier and with western australia you see it's a lot of it if it becomes about freight when you look at the size of the country and so um, Western Australia being a net importer um, generally of goods, most of the manufacturing is done on the East Coast, a lot of the trains go back empty so and, and trucks go back empty. So actually back freight for us and, and access to the Eastern States market is actually relatively cheap, uh, but it creates a really expensive barrier for, for brands to come into Western Australia. So being based here is, is quite a, a, a strategically actually a reasonable location, even though it seems a thousand miles away because your, your own market is somewhat protected but you're, you've got um, access to the east coast and that um, I think it helped benefit probably Little Creatures. They're one of the brands that started in West Australia and moved across to, um, to, to Victoria after a period of time and then and then um, uh, Matilda Bay before them was another another example of, of a brand that probably started here and then and moved across. There are a couple of a couple of examples, but but you're right. The tyranny of distance, especially with the the, the recent um, locked borders and um, <laughs> being stuck, it was was um, was really really difficult to run a national national business. But um, that's why we've moved our head sales office uh, to Sydney now, and we have local local people in each state. And you know now more than ever. We've, we've been creating, well, there's a lot of opportunities coming up for us. We're looking at local um, footprints in each, in each state, so local venues and um, local uh, breweries um, in each state. Is there a comparative business to yours? I'm just thinking through the narrative of going from, I guess, your own product into um, distributing now international brands, and oftentimes it's been the other way, hasn't it, with uh, crafts sort of being picked up by other distributors in a sense or bought and then distributed. And it, it sounds like a, well, I'm, I'm just curious if there's a comparator or not is a part one. And part two is then, like, from an organisational management perspective, uh, have you got sort of quite clear divisions or people kind of across? both you know um, the local brands that you're building these like I guess the cellar door experience centers that you know craft is well known for and or or is it a is there a comparative b how do you structure it all probably the probably the closest comparative at the moment would be Coopers I mean they 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 do bring in Sapporo and a few other brands that they have I believe but um you know Lion CB are obviously in this this um, space as well they have their own brands as well as they uh, yeah, you know a range of agency brands that they they use um there might be you know drinkworks might be another sort of trading house more so but but probably don't have um the the local craft beer brands that sort of thing so it's when we when we sort of coined the idea i guess we we really thought there was room for that and it was an underserviced area of the market and we we really respect the time and 
um, how busy publicans are these days. And, and, you know, there's in any one state, there's 100 craft breweries and those venue managers or whoever was in charge of, of, of ranging in those places used to maybe see one or two reps or three reps a week at max. Now they might see 20, 30, 40 and have the ability to be able to represent more than simply the beer brand that you are, a branded house, so to speak, and to become a, a house of brands and to offer more to um, to the hospitality sector and retailers than than, than I guess what um, what is being offered by a single single craft brewery and I think that that's sort of where we where we started with it and you know from an organisational structure perspective we we are very small uh, organisation still like it almost it's really bizarre but it still almost runs like a family company it was founded by. Um, a, a family of the Hodemakers. John's still the managing director of it. He runs it very much like that, even though we are a, a, a listed company on the ASX under GDA, Good Drinks Australia. Um, but the way it's run, I've been with the business. It's a great business. You know, I've been with the business for, for eight, since we started it, 18 years or so. And we've we've effectively got, yeah, head head of sales in each state. We've got um, a, a brewery in, in Sydney, the Atomic Brewery. We're building one in the Sunshine Coast um, up the road from where you, you are, Luke, uh, in Yamundi um, for the Matzo's brand. And um, we have Matzo's in Broome in Western Australia under a licence arrangement and obviously Gage Roads Brewery in, in Fremantle now, which we've just opened about four months ago, effectively creating a, a hospitality arm to our business that we never had before. So, we, yeah, we do have a head of hospitality now, um, Lee Behan, who's um, uh, an Irish uh, bloke who's um, got a huge amount of experience um, running venues and, and that looking after that side of the business for us from, a, from an operational standpoint. And yeah, marketing. We got brand managers under each brand, and marketing. Yeah, so it's it has turned quite quickly into into a bit more of a complex machine, but still very much um, you know with us, I guess across across some of the the finer points of decision making, which may frustrate people at times. But that's how family run businesses sometimes operate. You know, we caught up, Mike. You would have enjoyed it. Um, we had a matzos at the uh, pub in Yamundi last week, and you, I, you, can you? Um, recount the story around the growth and how quickly you scaled and then also I guess some of the techniques that you put in place in terms of being able to grow the brand with people having the, the actual product in hand because I think that's not necessarily I mean sorry it could be um, applicable to other beverage companies but I think some of those strategies also would be really easy to apply to sort of more traditional hospitality environments as well because they're just they're quite grassroots and guerrilla but really effective by the sound of things. I guess our growth journey was quite, quite, um, and I was talking to to Luke about, you know, my history came came from back in um, in actually as a technical brewer, as a qualified brewer. That's where I kind of started, and um, really got the passion and the the bite for the craft beer bug. And and um, you know, when I was running the brewery uh, here at Gage Rose, we were doing about fifty thousand cases a, a year. We went on a growth journey pretty quickly. Where the following year we did three hundred and fifty thousand cases, and then the next year we did a million cases. Um, the year after that was one point three million, and then one point seven million cases. So it went very, very quickly. And um, you know, some of the grey hairs you might see on the side of my head are um, probably a test, test, testament to that that growth. But um, you know, throwing people at it, running the business twenty four hours a day, seven days a week, getting phone calls at two in the morning, and those types of things. Like it was a really um, strong uh, growth period for us, and we had done a, 
a, um, a, a distribution deal and contract brewing deal with um, one of the major retailers at the time. And we um, and that that's what really helped set us off on that that growth journey. And we probably yeah got to a um, got to a point where we had probably saturated, I guess, that, that channel to market and and didn't feel that there was a great deal of um, uh, growth left in, in that in that channel. And and okay, well, how do we how do we go about um, taking it broader to the broader market? And that set us on this um, journey where we we basically bought the shares back from that retailer and took the company one hundred percent independent again. They they had a twenty five percent stake at that time. And uh, you know, some of us in the key management, we mortgaged our houses and put money into that and made it made it all happen and um, really backed it ourselves. And at that point in time, what we had was we had distribution through the, the through the retailer, and we had scale because we'd managed to scale up our business. But you need obviously um, the sales force and you need awareness in the in the market to to be able to to take it further from there and one of the techniques we use and it's what luke was referring to before was this brand enhanced strategy where effectively we had the scale to be able to um, produce product and 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 beer and cider and rtds and things like that at very low um very low cost and so what we figured was let's let's use uh, events as our as a as a tool to get that product into people's hands. And so effectively we were able to sell it at cost into those events and didn't really matter how many events we did because as long as we broke even on the event and as long as we had enough capacity in our plant, we were able to um, do those at infinitum. And that allowed us to get our, our beer and our product into the hands of consumers in, in what is a you know super fun, engaging environments for them and, create our brand as effectively synonymous with fun the fun that they're having at that, at that engaging um, environment and, and it didn't it's not a huge leap of for the consumer then beer lovers to to try our beer at, a, at an event and once you've got that trial and they enjoy it for them to then go to a liquor store or a, or a pub and see our um, brand on tap they're much more likely to support it and that's what we saw we saw sort of the brand enhanced strategy going um going north in terms of you know how many liters we were putting putting through that uh, we ended up doing a, a million or a million and a half liters just through that um, part of our business at zero profit margin for us, but effectively just covering our cost and effectively it was free marketing for us and Santa Luke you know the, the funny um when we caught up the other day, the funny um, thing is, you know, when we first started that, the first thing it was like, okay, how they're trying to get, trying to get, just, just get momentum. And it was, okay, well, let's use barbershops. You know, someone's getting their haircut. That's an event. Give them a free beer. Great. That was as small as the event was. And then it moved into, you know, it might, I'm going to use art gallery, but it's not really on our brand, but you know, it's like a smaller event. And then it goes into a festival and then turned into the fringe festival. We won that. Um, here in WA, which is a fairly large event, gets about a million people a year through it. I think a bit, bit less now, maybe eight or nine hundred thousand. But um, at the time, was really hammering it. And then that move without that, then we wouldn't have got the stadium. So now we're the exclusive supplier to the to the Optus Stadium here, sixty thousand person stadium, and and then you know fifty thousand people, sixty thousand people a week, every week, week in week out, drinking our beer. Again, profitless for us, but. Um, what a what a great way to expose your brand to people, and and so we've sort of taken that that approach to really get our get our brand um, out there with effectively 
bootstrapped marketing funds. We didn't have marketing dollars. The company wasn't profitable when we did that, uh, when we embarked on that journey. So how do you how do you get your beer out there? How do you get free marketing? Um, and that's where that's where that sort of strategy came from and helped us set us off on this growth curve. And then, of course, once you start to become a little bit prof- more profitable and you've got the ability to um, invest, I guess, in your in your brands through through more traditional forms of marketing. That's, I guess, where we embarked on the um, on the hospitality strategy um, and branded venues. There'd be some breweries out there that would love to just do a million litres a year yeah. in general, <laughs> let alone give it away at cost price. <laughs> it took quite a lot of our shareholder capital and and everyone's belief to build a brewery of that of this sort of size. I think we did about twenty million litres last year, and so you know a million litres out of twenty million doesn't. You know, it doesn't sound like a lot, but I can understand as a, as a very, very small craft brewery. I've, I've worked as a, you know, a brewer in a tiny little brew pub in Canada in a past life, and and um, those are big numbers. But for us at the time, it, we had bigger dreams and bigger aspirations, I guess, than being a, a small, real, re, real um, local brewery. We wanted to always, through our journey, become a, a regional, a regional brewery, a regional player, and then move that into national national brand. And I guess that's really what we're um, we're all about at the moment. And throughout all that, we haven't lost sight. You know, as a it's really funny. Like as a brewer now, I'm in charge. As a traditional brewer originally, now I'm in charge of company strategy and hospitality. But to never lose sight of beer quality throughout the way, and to never lose sight of what we're really, really about, which is about really great craft beer. But then to apply that to to these marketing methods, I guess, and ways of just trying to get our brand, get our brand out there, and get people to fall in love with it. It's been a really interesting, really interesting journey. Hey, yo, my quality control. Captivates your party patrol. Your mind, body, and soul flow. The bell tolls, let the rhythm explode. Big, bad, and bold. Be boys of bold. In these styles, we hold. Let the story be told. Where the platinum will go. We use breath control. So let the beat unfold. Intro on drum roll. It's probably a neat segue, actually, Aaron, if you could maybe walk us through your own personal journey through all of that, starting as a brewer and then I think uh, maybe starting and getting through to, you know, your current role. One of the things is, is um, particularly in context of, you know, one of the issues that everyone knows about and we talk about and this podcast is devoted to really is trying to inspire people to come into an industry, start off in one point, end up in another. You've, you've stayed within the same um, environment. Let's uh, let's sort of, sort of identify that. But you've had a number of roles. Do you want to sort of walk us through that and the kind of your own professional ambition and things that, have, that drove you to make shifts at different times? I've probably had, you know, probably three real career paths, I guess, within the one business, um, within the one company, within Good Drinks or Gage Roads. And... I guess when I finished school, this is going back a little way now, but um, I've been in the in the industry for more than twenty years. So you know, I'll try and I'll try and cut to the chase. But um, when I finished school, I got into the wine industry um, in Margaret River, and and I, I met a woman there, Janice McDonald, who's a fab- fabulous winemaker, and she was also one of the brewers at Matilda Bay um, Brewery back in the day, which is um, based out of WA here. And so we were always joking around that you know, in the winery, we would make. Um, we would make a batch of homebrew out the back and so on and so forth and a bit of banter. And we did make a couple of terrible batches at some point, you know, in the back of the, the winery. And, um, you know, probably was there for a few years and it was just a landing point for me. I, I'd got into to university, but I didn't, I didn't have um, ambition to go straight away to uni and I actually wanted to travel overseas. And I, I sort of saw the wine industry as maybe a, a way of getting into California or the US or something like that and Napa Valley and then moving on from there. And, I'd sort of said to her, look, I'm I'm kind of out. I think I'm going to go overseas and, and do that trip. And and she she said to me, well, there's this really exciting opportunity coming up in Fremantle. 
and um, we're going to start a brewery there. And that actually, she convinced me to go along and do that. And that turned into Little Creatures. So we did, we started, um, I helped start the Little Creatures brewery with um, with the founders of that back in the day. And of course, I didn't know a great deal about brewing, but I learned pretty quick and was there for a couple of years. And we did really well. We, we, we won a lot of rewards. And I I guess I, at that point in time, that's where I just fell in love with craft beer. The beer bug had bitten me. I'd kind of found the wine industry at the time I think the wine industry's changed a lot, but at that point in time was a little pretentious potentially. And I felt craft beer was very down to earth. People really helped each other. There wasn't a lot of ego involved and I, I loved it. And I thought, this is me. And so I was there for a couple of years and then I went overseas and worked in Canada and the US and um, up and down the, the West Coast. And at that time, the US market was a lot more advanced in terms of its craft beer journey than what we were and I sort of thought that was you know 10 or 15 years in front of where we were here and what a great opportunity to kind of get ahead of the the game and um, I was over there ended up being over there for about two years and uh, I was in San Diego and the craft brewers conference there and I met um, uh, one of the founders of Gage Roads and I'd gotten up on stage I'd won an award there and came down and I didn't actually know he was there but he must have seen me get up on stage and that's where the conversation started he came up and tapped me on the shoulder and said hey Aaron how are you going well done um what are you doing and I was, I was I was about to take the car and drive down through Mexico and Central America surfing for a for a cut for a six months or so and he said well I'm about six months away from starting a brewery in, in Fremantle my hometown called Gage Roads uh, would you like to come and join me so then I, I was great let's do it and that sort of started my I guess my um my journey with this company and um, I was a brewer for quite a period of time and then when we hit that growth journey that I spoke of previously I moved into more of an operations manager type role and um, obviously head brewer and, and then operations manager general manager operations and got to a point where I became the chief operating officer and um, through that that journey you know obviously I'd done my technical studies through the Institute of Brewing and Distilling out of London and, and the rest of it but I didn't have management experience or experience in in, in how to run a company, um, and I, I needed it because we just, as I spoke about, we'd gone to a million cases and, and above very very quickly, and I suddenly found myself managing huge teams of people that I had no idea how, how to do it. I feel sorry for some of those poor people, you know, that I used to manage back in the day, but um, learning on the spot. So I did an MBA and um, I studied that during the during the you know in the evenings and um, weekends and that type of thing, and that really gave me a very good handle on business, how to run a business, how to run a company and company strategy. And I kind of realised that the path we were on, we were getting bigger and bigger and bigger, but there was no pathway to, to becoming really um, the company that we all hoped and dreamed it would be, which would be a profitable kind of business and a, and a really well-respected craft brewery. And so that's when I went to the, the board and put together the um, the strategy to, to take our business independent and um, to really focus on brewing just great quality craft beer and growing out our brands rather than doing a lot of contract work for um for major retailers and um set us off on this journey and through that i guess then i became the chief strategy officer for our company and still holding uh the operations reins as well um bouncing a couple of balls at once and and moving through and more more recently again i guess um you know as in charge of strategy one of my key strategies that we put forward after you know, the brand in hand that we spoke of was this hospitality and embarking on really, really getting, immersing ourselves in the community properly and being being a part of local communities and how could we really do that in a way that was more than some event that someone else was running? Um, how could we really become part of that local community and 
and be meaning, meaningful in interstate and in, in different markets. And that's where hospitality came into it and, and local breweries um, and creating branded hospitality brewery venues. And because I was in charge of strategy and it's a new strategy, I was sort of, I guess, put in charge of exit. Oh, I put myself and, you know, MD said, well, you're probably the best person to be in charge of it. And so it's probably set about creating a hospitality business within our business with zero hospitality experience, which is, um, <laughs> you know, an interesting place to be. But but I think, you know, as I was saying before, maybe providing a bit of fresh fresh perspective, you know, sometimes when you, you don't know, you don't know the detail, the operational detail, you can come up with these wild ideas and some of us are making a career of it as we speak. I've got a, a question specifically about uh, the education piece, like because I think that um, I don't know whether you talked about this, Luke, on other podcasts, but the mention of adding an MBA in part one, but part two it was it challenging to both study and work and that the practical of it because I think listening to you, you've almost used that MBA experience and tell me if I'm wrong in terms of almost a live project on your own business and then yes. taking the learnings and executed concurrent it's almost a, um, a you know a, a practical a practical MBA at the same time as a theoretical but I think for people listening who might be thinking about you know further study or trying to like any, any insights around that? Oh, look, I, I'm a big advocate for learning. I mean, I, you never stop learning. Um, and I, I've, I've always studied something or been learning something in um, at some point along the way, whether it's technical, whether it's, you know, strategy or brand or the MBA piece was, was bringing a whole lot of elements together. But, you know, more recently, you know, just personal growth, you know, um, leadership and, and um you know, getting to know yourself a little bit more, you know, um, and, and those types of things in, a, in an environment like that. So I, it's, it is, it is very challenging when you're working full time, but I was, I'm fortunate enough. I had kids probably later on in life. And, and I think that that really does throw a bit of a spanner in the works um, because you want to be able to spend as much time as possible at home with them when, they, when they're younger. So I'm really happy that I kind of got my, the bulk of my studies and MBA out of the way kind of early and then grew yeah, grew into my role and you're exactly right like doing the the mba it literally was a live project you know the things that we were i was learning in that course i was applying day to day in, in our business and we flew up to china and there's a, there a really interesting story about the guy that in, in, um, invented uh, acer computers he was a widget manufacturer making the best the best microprocessors in the world but he would invent something and then very quickly everyone would catch up to it and the big companies that he was selling his his microprocessors to were just demanding cheaper and cheaper prices all the time out of him and he was never able to keep the head of the curve and he, he he eventually said look i'll tell you what i'll i'll give you this cheap price on this on the best microprocessor but you got to stick a sticker on every one of your computers that says what what processor it was and that sticker turned out to be the intel sticker and so all of the computer uh, geeks that are out there in the shops they knew that this intel sticker meant that was the best processor and he created a brand out of it so he's turned what is you know widget manufacturing which if you want to look at our business in a with that that kind of light that's what we do we make cans and bottles of beer and we sell it and effectively that could just be a commodity but once you brand it and you create brand out of it that's where you get the value and that's what i said to john at the time so he went on to become the founder of acer computers you know basically started almost on the street and turned into a billionaire and that was what i said to john and the board at the time was you know we're, we're, we're the largest contract brewer in the country we're the largest brewer in wa and we make no money um, and our business isn't achieving the goals that we want want it to do. We really need to focus on our own brands and, and 
you know, we are so passionate about beer. We make great beer. We had we were winning awards. We've won we've won Little Dove and one of our beers has won, you know, the best beer in Australia. Uh, we win awards all the time, but we were unable to really tell anyone about that and no one knew that because it, it, it requires brand to tell that. And so that's sort of, I guess, a little little example of, of one tiny little aspect that we, you know, that we applied to this, to, to the business moving forward and coming back from that, that trip to China. It was really, really enlightening in that space. But no, you're absolutely right. And anyone that that is out there, I asked the founders of Little Creatures once upon a time, what's, you know, I, I want to, I could see they had all this, they had everything that I wanted at the time. And I said, can you give me some investment advice? You know, stock market, this, you know, how do you start a brewery, blah, blah, blah. And um, when the guys at the time said, I don't have much investment advice for you, but the best investment I can advice I can give you is to invest in yourself and to study and to, to learn the things that you don't know. And then the rest will just fall into place. And that was really good advice, actually. And I've sort of taken that on board ever since. Your strategy around uh, venues and I don't want to confuse this question too much, brands that you acquire and then relevant to venues that you would open and how they fit in with community, there's obviously the... Um, the Lion example, there's, there's many, I guess, beer companies that are opening hospitality venues as well. Your strategy sits slightly different to that, correct, in terms of, um, you know, I guess, potentially even volume of venues that you would intend to open across the course of, the, of time and then, then location, obviously relevant to volume as well. Is that, is that fair? We don't want to become like a McDonald's or Subway of, of venues. Um, we, we really have a more of a mindset that, a couple of key or a few key venues in key locations for us is really what we're about. We, we don't want to um, become a venue company, so to speak. Really what it is for us is about how do we represent our brand to that market? How do we embed ourselves in the roots of that, that community? And what we've found is that, you know, the people that work in your, in your venue and that, that local brewery, they send their kids to the local schools they're a part of the, um, you know, the local football club. They're a part of that local community. And you can't buy that connection. You know, that, that is real and it's genuine. And we're, so we're, we're, we're saying, well, in certain key areas where we feel um, are important to us, we would love to put in a, um, a Gage Roads venue, for example, somewhere um, on, in the East Coast, maybe southeast Queensland or maybe in the northern New South Wales region or even the northern beaches of New South Wales, somewhere there. Those people that work there and, and live in that area, then therefore they support that that brand. And I, I love the idea of tourism areas as well, which, which, which I think, you know, we want to try and avoid tourist traps, so to speak, and have areas that have got a really strong local community. Um, but also do have that tourism potential. And I think the, the local community keeps you honest because you have to, as a, as a hospitality operator, you really have to, to encourage regulars back and you can't give them, a, a, you know, bad service or bad food or, or what have you. And you've got to create great, great value for them all the time. And then the, the tourists and, and people that go to that area is, 
as visitors, when they have an experience with your brand or your branded venue, then they go back to where they came from. Maybe they went to Southeast Queensland on holiday and then went back to Ballarat. Well, they still see your our, our products in the liquor store in Ballarat. And so they've had an experience, a branded experience, hopefully a great one. Hopefully they've really connected with our staff in a, in a wonderful way, had a great you know, experience with the beer and food. And then when they, they're looking at the walls of colour in some of the liquor stores these days that you see, hopefully they can see us and recognise us and go, I, I remember that place. That was fantastic and what a, what a great experience and they can support us. So that's that's kind of, um, I guess, what where this where this sort of started from. It's a, a way, a deep way of connecting with, with the local community but also connecting with people one 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 on one where we we're actually controlling the experience and it's not a, a music festival or somebody else's event but when it's a gen it's the genuinely the home of us and we've gone on in in recent times to you know i think it was only would have been 12 months ago maybe we were a company of about 160 people 180 people or something and i, I just saw a number recently which was suggesting that we had about 480 staff now, with um, with hospitality coming online and the growth in our business and growth in our brand moving forward, and those those people, you know, we, we were actually just sitting around saying, "Wow, we've what we're doing here is providing opportunity and growth opportunities for those for all those people." And I think that's really meaningful. And, and when they, those people that work for us, if they can love us and and um, and also we can provide a really really warm environment for them to thrive in, they're going to be our biggest ambassadors out in the community as well and really help us to um to uh to grow and and to present our beer to the community in those areas and that person that has the you know the child in the local school they've always got a pnc night or something like that and if they need beer then you know it, it kind of it just suddenly starts to go out the local football club needs needs some cartons for their for their fundraiser or their their hamper or you know the raffle or what have you and it, it really it really is very organic and that's what i really love about it i love that part of it but yeah it's certainly not about rolling up 100 venues or anything like that you know we're talking you know enough venues that you could count on on one hand potentially you know up and down the eastern seaboard so really just key 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 venues and key locations what's it like being someone with no hospitality experience running a hospitality business um i really enjoy it actually it's been it's given me an absolute new lease on life i feel you know being in the design process i'm able to ask really stupid questions that others wouldn't and I, and I feel it opens up it opens it opens up to new ideas that that somebody who's got operational experience may not consider because it's difficult operationally um, and I think a lot of people with with hospitality operational experience are probably listening to this right now going that guy would be a nightmare to work for you know <laughs> create all these these crazy ideas that then some poor bastard has to execute but I do feel like you know whenever we're talking about it gives the it gives the customer experience. My experience of hospitality is is as a customer, as a as, as a person that's walked into hospitality and being a part of the, the process of starting hospitality. This has been in my mind now for four or five years, and every time I walk in, I'm looking at things. I look at the small detail. I look at the IKEA sticker on the inside of the lampshade, and I think I don't want that inside my hospitality venue, you know. And I really notice notice things from a customer's perspective. That I think operationally people may may walk past, and when we're sitting at a at a table now, we actually talk about it at, for a hospitality meeting. We actually pull a chair up, an empty chair, and that chair is the customer. And you know, when you're making a decision, you've got to make the decision and ask the customer what they think. 
what do they think about that that decision? It might make things easy for you operationally, but is it is it creating the best customer experience? And I, I guess that's the lens I bring to it. And then within that, um, we have a hospitality board now, which um, I've put together, which has a number of industry professionals on it. So we are getting that that level of operational experience and that that level of I guess experience that I'm lacking. But um, there's also um, our marketing manager sits on that. I sit on that. We've got Miles Hull, which many of you may know, um, is a is a is a really well respected um, hospitality guru in WA, and um, he sits on that. We have um, Lee Bean, who's our head of hospitality. He's he's there as well. Marcel Brandenburg, our, fin- our CFO, obviously someone's got to fund fund it, um, and our managing director as well um, from an executional standpoint and overall company strategy. So we, we do have a, lo- a level of expertise that we we bring to it. Every each of us brings to that, and yeah, I, I, I mean it seems to be it seems to be working for us, which which is really really good. I wanted to ask you. Um with regards to, I guess, the market in general, we, we had a, I think our first guest, Mike, you may correct me if I'm wrong here, but was from craft beer. Was it Danielle from Two Birds? Danielle from Two Birds, yeah, that was years ago. Oh, yeah. I just caught up with her on the weekend. All <laughs> ah, right, nice. Yeah. Um, legend. And we've had uh, Ross Jurisic from Stone and Wood. Um, I'm struggling to think if there's been more, but there's been quite a lull Um Oh, Fishwick, obviously, from uh, uh, previous roles. Um, j- j- just for the record, never Miles Hull. I'll just put that out there because he's probably <laughs> listening. <laughs> you can't get him on. He's a, he's a good man too. But um, Get him on. Miles is an intriguing fellow. So it's, been, it's, it's probably been, I would suggest, at least 18 months since we've had someone on from the beer market. What are you seeing at the moment? Because I remember those conversations being dominated by the volume of new brands entering the market um and obviously crafts has been on a on a pretty significant upward trajectory for a number of years now has that settled down at all from your perspective is it still the same are you still like did the seltzer wave uh have any sort of significant impact and 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 what are people drinking at the moment um so Look, from a macro perspective, there is still really strong growth in the craft beer market. It's starting to become a fairly mature market now. I don't want to, off the top of my head, I haven't got the figures in front of me, but it's over a billion dollars in, in you know, in, as a market now, and it's still growing at five, six percent, six percent, I think it is. It's a really important and growing part of the market, and I think now craft beer consumers are. It's not so much about what is craft beer anymore you know people used to uh, used to want to know that you know back in the day if you're talking about 10 years ago you, you were trying to educate the consumer on what what craft beer was and then now as we've moved through i think people are asking more of of craft beer and you know there's a thousand pale ales out there there's a thousand summer ales there's a thousand different hazies and all these different types of beer and i think some craft brewers in, in the past have potentially fallen into the trap of still trying to differentiate themselves through product differentiation and you know back in the day for example little creatures right very simple you have a beer style that doesn't exist in australia an american style pale ale you bring it in you make it you've got a collar on that market no one else is doing it you have that ip for a period of time you become first market mover advantage and and you're off and running right so but now every single beer style that's ever been known has been brewed and now you know and 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 more and new styles being invented and and I think there gets a point where the consumer can become overly saturated 
with new news all the time. And I think when you go into some of the retailers now, um, it's becoming some, in some respects unshoppable because you, you just see these walls of stuff that you don't recognise and colour and flavours and all these names and weird and wonderful names and things like that that, that um, are very difficult for... And unless you're one of those very highly educated pointy end of the, of the market, and in many respects... Hospita- a lot of people that work in hospitality and probably a lot of your listeners would be in that that area that where what I call it, you know, in, in that kind of bubble where you do get it, you do get it. But you um, when, when you when you get out of that and you get into, you know, the rest of the market, which is 95% of it, you know, 90% of it that a lot of people don't get it. And I think that um, they are moving into other, other areas or, or going back to brands that they trust. And we have seen a bit of that through COVID as well, where, where when there's a bit of a crisis, people are going back to things that they trust, and they may buy a can of the new thing, but they probably walk out of the store with a, with a carton of um, a single fin in WA or you know you know Forex or up something up in Queens Queensland, for example. But um, that's that's happening. There's still a lot of new entrants coming in. There's still a lot of new people coming in. I think while there's growth in the in the market, while there's still these big buyouts that you see the big brewers doing, um, there's there's always going to be new capital flowing in to the market. I think it'll be really interesting to see what happens once once the market does cool off a bit and if growth does flat flatten out and stop, what what then happens? Because if new capital isn't being tipped in, a lot of these businesses may may not make it. I know that's a that's a pessimist pessimist view of it. But you kind of reach this point where you go, have we reached craft beer saturation and a lot of consumers are now moving into into seltzer into better for you we're seeing we're seeing um low carbohydrate no alcohol beers on fire um you're seeing mid-strength is growing really really strongly traditional beer like um you know the mainstream lager styles um, are in decline pale ale as a category within craft beers in decline and so rtd is on fire you know seltzer and and um um, those ready-to-drink style style products, um, better for you in that category, is on fire as well off of a big base. So, yeah, the consumer um, consumers um, moving around a bit, but we still see a really buoyant outlook for 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 craft beer um, in particular. If you're um, if you're offering um, something that people can recognise over and above or identify with over and above just pr- just product differentiation into what is that brand? What do those people stand for? You know, who are they? What what do they represent? Does that represent me and who I want to be? And so it's move moving from from simply I make craft beer and I use hops and this different malt and wheat and things for these different areas to um to really what are you about background? And I think the consumer now is starting to peel the onion layers a bit and look right into these businesses and go who are you? What are you about? And and uh, we're seeing a bit more of that as well. This question may be a bit too uh, fine point, but and I'm talking more with, um, I guess, conscious of maybe Sydney, Melbourne markets. Luke, you might have a view on Queensland, but like there was a period of time where getting on-premise 
relatively high profile on-premise um, in centralized CBDs areas is quite important because of just the visibility and establishing price point. And obviously the pandemic has shifted behaviors, at least in, I don't know what's going on in that part of the country, but over here at least, uh, um, Aaron, like there's, you know, there's, you know, I guess in Sydney, a bit of a, a bit of a diaspora, I call it a decentralization and CBD footfall, for example, you know, might be about 60% what it was COVID across city Melbourne at the moment. Um, which obviously has some pretty big questions being asked then of uh, people with exposure to um, one set, like a, a certain distribution model, right? Do you think that like there's an element of that model? And so, so you, you know, in other verticals, people are like, oh, the, when's it coming back, et cetera, because that go- takes us back to our old way of doing things. Um, do you think that's going to happen? Or do you think that there's now this period where uh, there is a different distribution model, even if it's only an adaptation with slightly different percentages across off-premise versus on-premise or suburbs versus city? Is, is that what's going to happen? Or do you think that it is going to just ultimately trend back to what we had before? And, and if so, and the reason I'm asking is, of course, because of what may happen in the market if people kind of are making, trying to make decisions around this? Yeah, it's a really interesting question. I think there, there are certainly long-term and permanent effects from COVID that will never return back to normal. I mean, I'd never really engaged with, with Zoom, you know, or, or um, you know, online meetings the way that we did, you know, we were forced to, we were forced to change. Um, people started suddenly using QR codes and, you know, those that technology had been around for so long that it was, it became something that people started to, to use. And I think um, the decentralisation thing, I believe it is a it is a trend that isn't necessarily going away. Like pe- if people can do a, a job from a, a remote area, they, they will in, in many respects. But, again, humans like to get together and they get we get the best benefit out of if we were sitting doing this this talk together in a room together, you know, the conversation would be would be different and we'd have probably have a bit more connection amongst us. And certainly you see that when when we have meetings around the country. Like I fly around the country all the time now, but the borders are open meeting my team and there's nothing like, you know, shaking, you know, giving someone a high five and a, you know, a, having a beer with them and just reading that body language and being in that being in that same space and I, I feel that people will will want to come together and it, it won't just be all you know remote people working all over the place so my personal take on it is it'll come back it'll come back to a certain extent it may plateau out at a point I don't think that the you know the remote working or you know people people moving away from the bigger cities a lot of those people that have moved away probably won't go back but um Certainly there will be, I think there'll be infill and things will get back to normal. It's just going to take a lot longer than simply a snap, a, a snap to, to occur. And in, um, you know, in Australia over the years, I, I can't remember the number, the last numbers that I saw, but there was something about 250,000 immigrants a year coming into Australia. And we've really relied on that, that growth. And there's all this rhetoric around, you know, boats and boat people and so on and so forth. And it's almost like scaremongering for, for poli- political, you know, purposes. But Australia needs, in a way that that growth to to sort of fuel it, and I think you know if we can get if we can get immigration back and get people back, that's a great thing for the hospitality sector. I think it's a great thing for our cities as well because those people generally migrate to to the bigger cities. Um, we'll start to see footfall increasing again. It's just a case of getting getting things back on back on the uh, on the recovery trail. The V shaped the V shaped recovery might not look so steep on the other side of the V. You know. <laughs> What's the experience been like for you over the last couple of years? In WA? 
Yeah, it's been it's been really really bizarre actually because we've been sitting here w- watching in many respects from you know inside the penitentiary. You know, <laughs> we weren't allowed out. So, and I think overall the government did a great job here keeping keeping COVID out, COVID out, and keeping business running. Hospitality was doing really well and booming. I think you know things have become significantly more difficult recently um in the last in the last sort of six to 12 months for local businesses as as as, you know more and more lockdowns bite and and those types of things and and now with people actually catching covid and uh, the borders reopening and um staff being out and we we we've been very insulated from it in western australia and generally it was it wasn't the worst conditions imaginable and it was it was very difficult you know running a national business for us as well with the lens of you know what was happening here, and then the lens of what's what happened in you know Victoria and New South Wales, particularly, it was very very difficult for our teams there and our people there. And I think you know when I look back, what what could we have done better as an organisation, as a group? I think you know connectivity is probably a, a big thing. You know, probably could have done better to to engage the staff there rather than just oh look we can't travel. You know, you know get 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 more on these types of calls, those types of things, and really see how people are going and, and that sort of stuff. Um, when you get busy, it's easy just to sort of put your head down and get going, not not necessarily understanding what um, what people on the other side of the, the country have been going through and, and around the world. And, yeah, that's that's a uh, learning experience for everybody, but hopefully we don't have to go through another one of these <laughs> in my lifetime. Oh, the, the debate over here is the flu. I don't know if it's the same thing over there, but it's the, I was on a call today where everyone was voting that the flu was worse than COVID. So um, ho- hopefully just stay clear of that if you can. Well, when, once once um, everyone was was uh, vaccinated, it, it almost is a bit like that, isn't it? I mean, unless you're a, a, vulnerable, a vulnerable person. But I, I got COVID and I got sick, like I got the flu and then I got over it and it's kind of like, okay, great. <laughs> Let's get on with it now. Many people are sick of talking about it. To be honest, mm, I think so. When when can we stop? Do you think when do we when do we stop asking the question of the COVID experience on this podcast, Mike? Oh, you know it's funny, Luke. I've been um, just trying to change the narrative um, more broadly in the city, and not it's almost as yeah as I've done with with lockout in Sydney, the Don Draper approach it just never happened. Like while we're talking about this, and then. Uh, I think as well, just more generally, like, it, and it's nuanced, isn't it? But um, I even am questioning, like, just, you know, how recovery, revitalize, like, all these things are kind of assume that you're coming back from something, whereas it's just like how we are now, right? Like, this is the new world. Like, we're in a new phase. It's like, how do we just, you know, talk about things, you, you know, with 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 reset paradigm, really, I suppose. That's the, the thing, Um I like. I think I've moved. I've, I think I've moved myself mentally into that position because it just doesn't matter what happened in 2019. It's a it's an arbitrary measurement point um, now, and it's all about how how optimistic and how positive can the future be. Is there anything else that you want to cover, Aaron? I'm a talkative guy. I can talk for hours, and you, your uh, listeners would probably get bored. But um, no, we're um, we're really excited. We're really excited for for the future. I think. Um, Drinks industry, hospitality has a huge, huge upside from where we are right now. And um, I do think that things are going to come back in the CBD. They may not get back to where they were, like, you know, quickly, but over time they will. And, you know, while consumers and people are, are demanding higher quality beers and ciders and, 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 and products, 
looking after themselves more, drinking less, you know, companies like ours will will thrive. And I think um, as, as long as hospitality obviously adapts to that, that changing consumer trend, then they will thrive as well. Really just thinking about the customer. That's that's my lens all, always. Um, and it's very, very apparent to me that as an operations person, when I was operating a brewery, I was very focused on efficiency and marketing would come in with some new shaped bottle or, a, you know, a, a different pack size that was going to make my life hard and I'd fight that because it was, oh, that's, that's not going to be very easy for me. But when you consider that the consumer, the customer, is demanding that, that's what they want. They want new, they want new news, they want different things, the different experiences, that's, uh, I think that's really pertinent to, to have in, in mind and um, surprising them and delighting them with something that, that they didn't expect because you really thought about them. And, you know, having, have you guys got, you guys have got young kids? I don't know if you've ever been to a public toilet with a young child, but it's almost just like, don't touch that, don't touch that. You know? And going to a hospitality venue with a young child is, is something that I, I was really identifying at the time when we built Gage Roads in Freo and finding that if I wanted to have an adult entertaining hospitality experience, I had to leave my kids at home. And so being able to empathise with that that consumer or that, that customer of ours and going, well, what if I wanted to bring that my kids to a hospitality experience and not have a compromised experience, have a proper adult entertaining experience and the kids are looked after and happy? And what would all the things do that we would do to, to encourage that? And one was to put in a, a big playground, which we did, but does an adult want to sit next to a playground that looks like a red McDonald's playground? No, they want to sit next to something that might look more like it should fit in a hospitality venue. So we bogged a land cruiser in the, in the sand pit and we put in a big cray boat and, you know, the kids are playing all over that now. And if you're sitting there having a beer next to that, you, you, could, be, you could be camping or you could be at the beach and, that's with the customer lens and, and likewise when you then get up and take your child to the toilet are they are they then sitting on an adult toilet well no we put in these tiny little ch- children's toilets that only the kids touch and then they can jump up and wash their own hands in a little basin and these types of things that you know as a parent if you're having to pick them up and p- pick them up and you know wash their hands and you know there's a hand dryer that goes off that scares them because it's right at their ear height and blows their eardrums out you know these little these little things you think of along the way that that's kind of i guess some of the learnings i think for for us that that have gone really really well um for for gauge freo and likewise the young 18 year old that wants to vape in the corner keep, keep them have a space for them that's as far away from the children as possible because the empathizing with them they don't they don't want to be next to the kids. So these just this kind of like real customer lens is, I guess, something that I really I really am focused on and, and trying to bring that to um to our hospitality offerings. It's great. All right. Well, um, Aaron, it's been great chatting with you. We've got final five questions to rip into. So let's uh let's jump into those, shall we? Um so um the favorite your favorite artist or album? Impossible, but I said I would say Led Zeppelin is pretty one of my faves of all time. And um, at the moment, I'm listening to um, a bit of Nightmares on Wax, kind of going backwards a bit. Very good. Um, and a, a book or podcast that you would recommend? I've been listening to it's a little bit dark, but um, Dan Carlin's Hardcore History. That's uh, been um, a bit of a podcast I've been listening to. And a recent book I read, which I really enjoyed, was called Breath or Breathe from James Nestor. Really, really interesting interesting book yeah what's, what's that one about it's about 
um, how humans over time um, have forgotten how to breathe properly. And if you can control your breath, and it's, it's changed the shape of our faces um, to the point where if you go back into the catacombs of France, you'll see the people had different sized nasal passages and different sized jaws and things like that. Coming, co- coming right back into you know, eating processed foods and what you were eating. Um, but, it, you know, people are not breathing through their noses as much as they, they should do, which is increasing anxiety levels and all sorts of stuff. But a very, very interesting kind of um, book from, from that perspective. I'm making a conscientious effort to breathe through my nose for the rest of this podcast. Um, <laughs> but um, it is Friday, and we know that you're giving away about a million litres of beer a year, so that's what I took away from this podcast. Um, but uh, what's your favourite drink right now? Um, I've been uh, smashing uh, the Negroni a little bit, to be honest. The craft beer guy that gets into the Negroni at the end of the night. Um, but, no, that's a good finisher for me. Or a good starter. Uh, and um, and um, favourite venue that isn't one of your own? Like I really – so there was one over here in WA called Il Lido, which is a great little venue in Cottesloe. I love that. Um, if I'm in Sydney, a bit more of a late-night venue, Frankie's Pizza by the Slice. I quite like that. If I'm looking at a brew pub, uh, probably the stomping ground venues in down in Melbourne are really, really impressive. Um, yeah. Have they got more than one um, brew down in Melbourne now? I've, I've missed that. Yeah, there is. There is, um, there is one down in um, – uh, Marabin. Yeah, the old Morris, Morris Morbury. Well, I'll have to go check that out. And um, finally, um, in the context of the industry, who's your biggest inspiration? That's a really, really good question that I don't really have an answer for. But um, there's so much, there's so much inspiration. Um, but I'd say early on, early on, some of the craft breweries that I that I visited in the US really gave me. Um, a lot of inspiration. The Sierra Nevadas of the world, the Stone Brewing Companies, Elysian Brewing um, up in Gastown, um, in Vancouver, you know, Steamworks Brewery and those types of things, they were amazing. So they, they gave me a lot of inspiration because they had both hospitality and craft beer and operations, which are all things that I'm kind of passionate about. <laughs> All very good answers. Well, Aaron, it's been a wonderful afternoon chatting. Um, thanks for all your good work, all the good times, and uh, 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 next time let's uh, find a reason to do this in person. Absolutely. Thanks, Michael. Thanks, Luke. Good to uh, be here.